for me, the role of trend forecasting is to constantly inspire, to constantly move people forward and like to make people feel a little bit uncomfortable because you're pushing them out of their comfort zone and saying, okay, you think it's all about red this season, but next season it's going to be about gold. I'm just making that bit up. And then people are a bit like, oh, no, because I like red and I've got comfortable with red and I'm just going to stay with red. And you're like, well, get uncomfortable because it's changing. And I think trend forecasting, its role is to push us forward, to create stories, to get us excited. And I think that's going to become more important than ever, storytelling. That's the voice there of Sally Joyce, who's the trend design lead at Marks & Spencers, explaining the role of trend forecasting. Now, I asked Sally to join me today as WGSN this year celebrates 25 years at the cutting edge of trend forecasting. And I was really keen to chat to a fellow trend forecaster about her experiences in this very unique industry. I'm Carla Bazashi, CEO of WGSN. And this week, my guest Sally Joyce is helping us reflect and celebrate 25 years of WGSN. Marks and Spencers is obviously a venerable British institution and interestingly, one of WGSN's first clients. And they remain with us today. Sally, to kick things off, can you introduce yourself to the listeners? My name is Sally Joyce and I am the trend design lead um, at Women's Wear at Marks and Spencers. Was there a pivotal moment or maybe a person during your career that was crucial to getting you are to where you are today? The first one was a tutor at Sixth Form and I didn't come from a background of fashion designers or artists or anything like that. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was always good at art from a very young kid, but I never really knew that you could have a career in anything to do with that. And when I got to sixth form, I was studying um, sociology and I did, I was also studying art and English literature. And then I'd actually gone to look at doing a sociology degree. And basically I got there and I thought, hmm, I don't everyone looks a bit grey and mm, it's not really fun and oh, something just feels a bit like maybe this isn't for me. And I just met him and I just said, uh, you know, after school one day, I just said, I don't know what I want to do with my life. And he sort of said, well, what are you good at? And I said, well, I'm good at art. And he said, well, why don't you go and do an art foundation course? He said, by the way, there's a Ravensbourne's a really good college and their closing date is in four days. So do you think you could pull a portfolio together? And I was like, okay. So he literally just gave me that direction. And then I submitted my portfolio and I got in without an interview. And that was basically my fate set. And so life does take you in very different directions. And being open to those opportunities, I think, is probably the most important thing. Do you feel that pressure of setting direction for a company that is just so kind of ingrained in people's lives? For me, I start a job and I think sometimes I think, oh, my God, I work for M&S. But then I forget and I just think, right, now we're going to do the trends for the season and I want them to be the best trends they can possibly be. And so I'm very good at compartmentalizing and not allowing that kind of bigger thing to sort of put pressure on me. Because I think there's a lot of I've seen it on your own website, you know, data smog. And, you know, I think in this job and in most jobs, you've got to focus at some point, you've got to be able to take your head out of everything else that's happening and all those pressures and actually just concentrate on what's in front of you right at that very moment. I mean, sometimes my mom gets super excited about it and loves that I work for Marks and Spencers and I'll be in a taxi going somewhere and they'll say, what do you do, love? And I'll say, oh, Marks. And then I regret saying it immediately <laughs> because it opens up this whole conversation. 
fun. So for me, I sort of forget that I work for this big global company sometimes. But in a way, that's not a bad thing because I need to do that in order to focus to do my job properly. Because at the end of the day, I just look at what my job is. And my job is to forecast those trends, make them really commercial, make them really beautiful so that they support the teams that have got to go out there and produce that product. That pressure is bigger to me than the pressure of like, oh, I work for a global M&S company. Because actually, if I get that bit right, then I help other people get their bit right, which then makes us that brilliant global company in the long run. You know, so I sort of break it down. Can you talk about that process? So sort of where you come in, where you hand off to design. And so for maybe listeners who don't work in this industry, how that product that they might go into store or go online and buy and ends up in their wardrobe, where that comes from? It's great, actually. And it's a fascinating question. And I'm sure you get it a lot as well. But obviously, I use WGSN. It's our starting point. It's it's sort of the backbone of what we do. We sort of measure all of our trends against WGSN. But we will look at other trend forecasting books and things that we buy as well. We look at Instagram and what's happening on social media. We look at what's happening in film. We look at what's happening on the catwalks. And so I'm always saying to my team, we gather all the data, we gather all the information, and then we almost join the dots. And we pull that together and we sort of say, oh, it's interesting that there's a Chanel exhibition on and then so-and-so in the catwalks just did a whole tweed 1930s dress collection, which echoes a little bit of Chanel. And we're feeling that the trend books are talking a lot about mono and that's interesting, you know, and we start to just piece it together. So I always think that trend research is identifying patterns in what you see around you, which is a little bit data driven, but also a lot of gut instinct and when you've been doing it a really long time, knowing what those opportunities are and what those winners are and what those key trends are. But we would literally like save loads of research, print them out into little piles. And then we would go into a room and we would sit around a big table and then we would lay out our little images like playing cards. And then it was almost like snap. Oh, you picked (laughs) up on that as well. And you picked up on that. And, you know, so I always think it's just that idea. And if you get several people around the table and you're all nodding and you're all going, yeah, I'm really feeling that, then that's how trends are created, I think. We call it either red threads or common threads. And it is pulling all of those quant data points or qualitative data points together. And what are you seeing in Tokyo versus what you're seeing in New Orleans versus New York, London, Sao Paulo, and not just in the big cities as well. And it's one of the reasons we've got our analysts and our editors and our consultants really spread all over the world because you cannot do that research just sitting behind a computer screen. You really need to see how consumers are behaving to be able to forecast trends. And I think it's interesting what you're saying about the point about data, because we live in a big data world and WGSN now has got, you know, multiple proprietary data sets that we pull in to help us do those forecasts. But that layering on of human expertise is invaluable. And for us pulling those two things together, that's the secret source. And I defend that position, you know, till my dying days, because the end point of this are human beings who are going to make decisions about what they wear, what they buy, what they put on their body, how they put that together, what that says about them. You know, coming back to your point about tribes and sociology and those kind of things. So, yeah, it's that it's that real kind of knitting of the two things. And actually, if you ever look at our methodology and the way that we present it to the outside world, it does look like a piece of fabric. Not because we're forecasting for the fashion world, but that kind of weaving in of those threads of information, that's what creates 
those forecasts. So you're you're sitting at that kind of very early conceptual point. You've got sources like WGSN feeding in. You're setting the trend direction for this hugely iconic brand. What happens after that? So we maybe create three or four stories, sort of big, 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 juicy macro stories that sort of like they feel like a bit of a lifestyle story, you know, that encompass kind of a little bit of mindset around how we're feeling as consumers. But then it will sort of give a bit of um, a direction in terms of what those fabrics could be, what those kind of key looks could be, and even a little bit of a color palette and a nod to top level print direction with it. So we create this beautiful sort of presentation that goes out about two, maybe four times a year, depending on we feel like we need an update. And we cascade that out to the whole design community at MS. But primarily we are under women's wear. So even though the rest of the BUs will take inspiration from it, they actually do sort of use, take what they like and they leave the rest and then work it into whether it works for men's wear or, or kids wear or home wear. And then what we do is we work with the head of design, uh, Lisa, and um, we work with her on the final design presentation. So we sit in the background and we sort of break it down and we create almost a bit of a strategy. So we stop plucking from the macro trends and thinking, OK, that would be great for like a February denim kind of look in the window. That could be great if we move that over into swim concept. That would be great for Peruna in March. You know, that would be great for like autograph maybe as a high summer little story. And we start to sort of like break it out into sort of like what could that look like for MS for the entire season. And then that becomes the next piece of work that we feed into. So the macro trends sort of like kickstart those really high-end designers. They get the ideas, they get the designers thinking very early on about like really high-end like color concepts key colors for the season like we might be saying it's reds up trending so really make sure you've got that in your ranges the fabric team will create a little presentation in MS where they've sourced key fabrics for the season for them to focus on from that presentation and so yeah it sort of starts to layer in and lay the foundation for what that design presentation is and then that design presentation is really the bible that the design teams use in women's wear and across the business to sort of map out their ranges. Okay and so it's gone into the design teams they've had all of that input from you they've then got to make decisions about what they're actually going to create when does the buyer come into that? It's really important that buying and design work together, that one isn't doing loads of work in the background and then proposes it to the buyer. And I think for me, if we go back to talking about how trends are developed, where you've really got to get everybody on board, like the beauty of a trend is that you've got all these different people who like different things all come together and agree that it's right. And I think the magic point in design is when you can get your buyer and the designer both on the same path and both agreeing and then you'll get the perfect balance of what that product range should be. So straight after the design presentation, we would we would get those working together. For me, one cannot exist without the other. Okay, we're going to change things up a little bit. Um, our listeners always like to hear a little bit more about the person I'm interviewing. So we've got some reoccurring questions that I ask all my guests. Don't think too much. Just answer straight away what's on top of your head. When and how do you prioritise yourself? Okay, so I have become really good over the years of just looking after my mental well-being and physical well-being. Like, and I always say it to the younger people on my team, I wouldn't be here right now if I was doing 16 hours a day and 
constantly overworking. So I'm a real believer in work-life balance. And when I was on the MA, Louise Wilson always used to say, you can't create life if you don't have a life. So like, I'm a real believer in like, you know, five o'clock, six o'clock, switch off. You've done as much as you can do. Go see your friends, go see your family. I do yoga. I'm part of a run club. I love reading books. I love listening to podcasts. And I just really make sure that I have that balance and know when to switch off. And that's for me how I look after myself. What will you eat if you're home alone and no one is watching? (laughs) This is kind of embarrassing, but a chip butty is like my go-to. Basically, it's my dirty little secret and lots of butter and lots of mayo. (laughs) Amazing. If that isn't it, what is your bad habit? (laughs) Okay, I don't really have much bad habits, actually. But um, my bad habit, I would say, is actually overthinking after all of that I've just said. And butter. Yeah. (laughs) Too much butter. butter. Also another good (laughs) t-shirt slogan, may I say. When did you last learn something new that had an impact on the way that you live your life? So I actually went to a Buddhist centre in London and learned how to meditate properly. And that was amazing. I actually ended up ended up only doing like the first lesson because it clashed with my diary. But even in that first one, two hour lesson, I learned so much because I think we all are afraid of meditating because we think, you know, unless my mind is completely blank, then I'm not doing it right. And actually the tutor taught me that actually that's not true. And actually things will pop into your mind and that's okay. You just need to acknowledge them and let them float by. But that was, that was pretty amazing. And just I remember thinking, oh God, I've got to sit on this cushion for two hours and my legs were killing me. But actually the two hours went so quickly. And yeah, I just tried to bring that into, I try to meditate every day for 10 minutes before I head out the door. Wow, I love that. That's really good. Another fun one. What was the last TV series you binge watched? This, I'm slightly embarrassed, but not the Beckham documentary on Netflix. Oh my God. You don't have to be embarrassed about that. I do exactly (laughs) the same. I know. And you know what? I was completely blown away. Like, I am not into football. I've never been into football. I've always known about David Beckham and, of course, his wife, but never really took that much interest. And I absolutely binged, watched the whole thing in two nights. And I just was blown away by it, actually. And um, I was thinking about it earlier before I came on. And I was thinking one of the things that I thought about was their resilience as individuals but also as a couple and I think that point where the whole of the UK is against David Beckham and the point where the whole of Spain is against Victoria and how they just so gracefully silently and gracefully rode those moments through and they're still here and they're still relevant and they're still happy and so when I'm having a bad day or I feel overwhelmed I think well Beckham had the whole of the UK hating him I'm sure I can get through the next few hours with as much grace and resilience (laughs) as he did so that's what I took away from it (laughs) amazing okay right we're going to get back into looking to the future on this particular topic so how do you think that trend forecasting is going to evolve in the future? I think it will evolve in lots of different ways. I know data is already a huge part of trend forecasting. I think that will obviously continue. And, you know, things like the fact that we're not traveling as much anymore. You know, I've worked in companies where I used to be on a plane every other week and this was pre-COVID and actually it was probably a little bit too much. 
now we don't travel hardly at all. We've gone completely the other way. So I think we're going to rely on trend companies to be our eyes and our ears and our feet all over the world, telling us what's happening in localized areas. I think we're going to need you to help us on the journey of AI and its evolution and other types of innovation as well, where again, you know, we've got our day job, we've got our focuses, we've got great, really talented people at MS and we've got loads of specialists, but we can't do everything. So we're going to rely on you for that. But I think one of the most important things going back to the creative piece is that I think we're going to need you guys to help us to be even more creative and even more unique, because I think that the whole world is looking at everything and we've got everything on our phone immediately, what brands are doing all over the world, you know, on Instagram. And I think for me, I think what's going to make us stand out is like, what's our unique take? And I don't know how trend companies will evolve to doing that, whether it's more personalized consultations, whether it's like, you know, unique projects that they do specifically for brands. But I believe because there are so many brands and so much happening, like what makes us stand out? Like what's our selling point? And as a brand, M&S, we know what our selling points are. We know what our values are. So we will want trend companies to help us evolve those values and those pillars even more. And how can we tweak them, embellish them to make them more interesting for our consumer? And I think ultimately this wellness journey is going to continue. And I loved what you said before about talking about the human aspect. At the end of the day, even though there's AI and there's data and all of this stuff happening, the human thing I think is going to be huge. And I think anything created by the human hand and I think individuality, authenticity, I think we're going to go back to all of that. So I think how can trend companies help massive big businesses like us and smaller businesses embellish and be the best that they can in their unique own handwriting? We publish this huge forecast called Future Consumer every year, which is a hugely valuable piece. love that piece. I love it. I devour it. But one of the things when we debate this, and we're not going to change the name, but I sort of don't even like the word consumer because it's just people. It's just people making decisions about the products and the experiences that they are going to bring into their life and the lifestyle that they lead. And it's, it's all about humans. It's a it's about people. And that's why for us, that's the starting point. You can't forecast the colours that people are going to want to have on their walls or on their clothes until you understand what's in their heads, how their lifestyles are evolving. And um, that journey as a trend forecaster is really, really important. I'm trying not to butcher this quote, but William Morris, have nothing in your house that you do not know to be beautiful or believe to be useful. And I think that's the lens I think about product through, which is Our job is to help brands and companies make things that are going to make people's lives more beautiful or are going to make their lives, you know, more efficient things that are going to make their lives easier, actually. And if it can do one or ideally if it can do both, then that is a brilliant product. I absolutely love that quote. I'm going to look up that quote. I love quotes, by the way. We are making and creating ideas in order to be able to create the best possible product for our customers to enhance their lives and give them colour, give them excitement, but also give them functionality as well so that it's purposeful. And I think just to never forget that we are to be of service to everybody. And that, and I think that groundedness is, is really, really key in trend. So for a brand like Marks & Spencer's, how are you persuading future generations to start wearing the clothes that your designers are creating? 
I don't really think about age. I think if we just get really good product that is universally great, affordable, great colors, good quality, you know, I think you can smash those kind of it's for this age group. And I think, you know, we do do a lot of work in M&S. And again, there's a lot of people in the background working on this. But we're always trying to reset how the customer thinks M&S is, because I think for a long time, there was this perception that we were for the older customer. And actually, if you go into store now, the product's just phenomenal. It's for any age. It's just great product, you know. And I think that's the difference between necessarily following trends or just following style. Because if you just have really good style, that's ageless, I think, rather than following every single micro trend that comes along. So I think how are we attracting ourselves to the younger customer? I think just trying to be aware of what's going on in those customers' lives, trying to be globally aware, trying to be aware of the trends, but, you know, translate them in a way that's right for our customer, making sure that in marketing, we're talking about the right stories, engaging with our customers on Instagram, getting our customers in. We have a great team in the business customer insight that sort of analyze the data and they get customers in and we have like panels with them and we talk to them about what they think and who they prefer. So I think it's about being really real and talking to our customers and not being afraid to hear that feedback because then that helps us to like move forward. Okay, Sally, so we're getting to the end and I ask this to all my guests, but thinking about obviously what we've been talking about today, are you more hopeful or anxious about the future? So I am definitely more hopeful, 100%. I think that we need trend-inspired products because at the end of the day, I think Chanel said something like, only one with no memory can claim to be totally original. We've seen so much already. There's so much product in the world. There's so much clothes in the world. And I think that what makes me go out and buy a new dress or a new jacket is the story behind that, the inspiration behind that, how it makes me feel, you know? And I think as I am a consumer as well, like I love buying clothes and I really buy into that. And I think that for me, the role of trend forecasting is to constantly inspire, to constantly move people forward and like to make people feel a little bit uncomfortable because you're pushing them out of their comfort zone and saying, okay, you think it's all about red this season, but next season it's going to be about gold. I'm just making that bit up. And then people are a bit like, oh, no, because I like red and I've got comfortable with red and I'm just going to stay with red. And you're like, well, get uncomfortable because it's changing. And I think Trend forecasting, its role is to push us forward, but to also inspire us to create stories, to get us excited. And I think that's going to become more important than ever. Storytelling, creating a narrative behind what we're trying to do, a purpose, a sense of purpose. So trend can help inform that with all of their data and their research and their customer kind of insight. So I think it's going to be more important than ever because, again, as long as trend, which I'm sure it will do, it stays connected to that human element and to creativity and to newness, then it will always have a role, always, and, and a role that can't be taken away or, repu- or, or replaced by a computer. Sally, thank you so much for today. I'm super grateful to you for sharing your insights and your stories on trend forecasting. 
Yeah, thank you so much, Carla. I've really enjoyed every single minute of it and I could have talked for like five hours. So yeah, I've absolutely loved it and hopefully I'll be back on again in the future to to catch up more. Thank you to Sally Joyce, Trend Design Lead at Marks & Spencers for joining us today to discuss the future of trend forecasting. Next week, WGSN's Create Tomorrow podcast is back with another episode examining the future of products and design. I'm Carl Bazashi, CEO of WGSN. I'll see you next time.